0: Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together
1: listen, listen for, for the, the word.
0: word. Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast today. Well, today we are looking at um, but really the flight to Egypt. This is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Uh, it's one we all know, but yet it only comes up every every three years because it's just in the book of Matthew. So, Alan, why don't you take it away?
1: Thanks, Christy. Yeah, and, uh, you know, our gospel lesson, I think, this Sunday is one that's easily overlooked. It deals with the troubling massacre of the innocents, It has some challenging examples of um, interpreting the Hebrew Bible. But we must remember that Matthew's infancy narrative tells the story of Jesus' birth as a means of demonstrating that he represents the fulfillment of the hope for God's salvation. And in that respect, Matthew connects him with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and indeed with Israel as a whole. This particular episode also tells the story of Jesus' birth as an anticipatory summary of the meaning of Jesus' life, death, mm-hmm. and resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that's a quote from Gene Boring's treatment in uh, of Matthew in the New Interpreter's Bible.
0: So... Put us into some context for us, if you will.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's so funny because we all know the quote-unquote Christmas story, the nativity story, and we, we basically kind of tend to, to just conglomerate um, M- Matthew and Luke all together mm-hmm. into one story. And w- we really should note at the outset of our discussion here um, and we're going to take up the first half of chapter two next week. They it's it's in reverse order in the in the in the lectionary, but it really is impossible to do that. It's impossible to conglomerate Matthew's infancy narrative with Luke's. Matthew demonstrates no knowledge of a previous residence in Na, in Nazareth mm-hmm. for Jesus, as does Luke's. Uh, for G, for Matthew, Jesus is from Bethlehem. He is the son of David. He's born in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. He lives in Bethlehem until he is forced to leave. Um, And furthermore, the setting of Matthew's announcement of Jesus' birth is the palace of the king. And the news is brought by Gentile astrologer priests, Mm -hmm. whereas Luke's announcement is made by angels to shepherds Mm -hmm. in a field. And Jesus' bed is a feed trough, and so there's—I mean—they're just so distinctly different, you know. In Luke, Jesus is from Nazareth; they come from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and then they return to Nazareth. Uh, Matthew knows nothing of that.
0: I think, and I think the desire is they these have come down was to it, to it, you know do what Calvin does was to mm-hmm. harmonize, mm-hmm. but to give. That kind of desperate biography we want of Jesus's childhood, and the reality is, they probably didn't have any details at all.
1: Well, Uh, and to me, I would say it washes out the unique emphases of both Matthew and Luke.
0: Right, right.
1: And so, uh, you know, the the I think the the we have to just let Matthew be Matthew. And Matthew mm-hmm. tells us one story of Jesus' birth and let Luke be Luke.
0: I think the question is, and again if we're looking at the historiosity of it, is did any of these things happen the way they are described.
1: <laughs> That's hard to say. It really is hard to. We don't have a lot of evidence to base it right. on.
0: Right. I mean, we. I just, mean, Jesus
1: was born. Right. right. Jesus well, was and, you born. You know, there's
0: something beautiful about Mark jumping into when he entered, if you will, into kind of mm-hmm. the the
1: straight into the ministry the of John ministry, the Baptist. Yeah.
0: Whereas here, you know, we know obviously he's fully human. He has this mm-hmm. this young life. We know very little about it, um, and we don't really have records when we really look at records. At all, there, there are, are no them.
1: records. Yeah, we, I, mean, the, I mean these.
0: Well, I mean, I meant, I meant. Sorry, excuse me. Um, when we look at records like of of other figures, oh, right. we just don't have records of what happened in China. No. You aren't really you do not really coming out into the world until you're an adult.
1: We know that Jesus was born. I mean, yeah. he, um, uh, Jewish and Roman historians mention him. Um, uh, we know that Jesus was venerated. Jewish and Greek and Roman historians all mention absolutely. that as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's
1: about all we can verify right. historically. Right. Um, and, and that's okay because we have to remember that the Gospels are proclamation, they're confessional in nature. We're not reading encyclopedia articles about Jesus. I think
0: that's where the confusion is, yeah. we, and because yeah. we're used to our modern day biographies, right? Right. Where we open we up, and we want to open up the Encyclopaedia
1: Britannica or look at Wikipedia and find out, you know, what what's all the information about this particular person. That's not what the Gospels are. The Gospels are preaching the good news. They're yes. proclamation. They're confessional right. in nature. They're not encyclopedic. <laughs>
0: and while this is an aside. I know that a lot of our pastors run into this by kind of the um, atheist side. Well, you know, you keep claiming that Jesus is born on December 25th, and that's a pagan holiday. Mm -hmm. And um, I know we have pastors listening right now, and I think everyone knows how to deal with it. But, of course, we don't know when he was born. We don't have that information. We don't
1: even know the year he was born.
0: Exactly, much less December (laughs) 25th.
1: If Herod died in 4 BCE... Jesus could have been born anywhere from six to seven BCE. Exactly. So exactly. Jesus was born. I mean, if we use the old traditional designation, Jesus was born six to seven years before Christ.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, and you know, there's also something about this in terms of our our modern day meism that we have to put a date and a name and mm-hmm. an, and on everything that is different than this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of significant too. Sure. Um it, 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 has, it, it emphasizes uh, a Jesus who came for all of humanity, yeah. t- 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 to me, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, moving ahead.
1: So, moving to our lesson for this week, after the Adoration of the Magi, Matthew tells us another story about Jesus' childhood that is unique to his gospel. Uh, And he says, now after they had left, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, go uh, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Matthew says, then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. That's verses 13 through Mm -hmm. 15. And so, you know, uh, at this point in the narrative, the only clue we really have as to Herod's bad intentions toward Jesus is that Matthew had said earlier that Herod was frightened and all Jerusalem with him when he heard that the Magi had come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews mm-hmm. in verse 3. Um, uh, so we, we really didn't, you know, this, this comes as news that Herod is searching for the child to destroy right. him. Um, Matthew doesn't bring that out explicitly until here. And one of the things we should note is, as before, when we saw um, uh, Joseph being instructed in the dream about about um, being being married to Mary and and you know, uh, um, naming Jesus and all Mm -hmm. of this, um, Joseph. Was instructed by the angel of the Lord, and Matthew reports that Joseph obeyed exactly as he was Mm -hmm. told. And the wording Mm -hmm. even in Matthew's gospel is very similar. And I think the point is is that, you know, Joseph obeyed exactly as he was told to do.
0: Right, right. And so they're in Egypt now and yep. Joseph is there and Calvin actually adds on a little bit to this what he thinks happens there this uh, yeah. obedient Joseph is there taking care of right. taking care of Jesus and right. that this is meant
1: Well to because we might wonder I mean you know by what route did they travel mm-hmm. how long did their journey take you know some people have asked why did they why did they leave at night um, you know, um, why did they go by night, you know, instead of, instead of by day? Right. Um, where would they have stayed in Egypt? Where did they live? Or how would they have supported mm-hmm. themselves? And Matthew doesn't provide us with an answer to these questions. We do know through various sources that there was a large Jewish community in Egypt, which had existed for centuries and very likely would have provided support for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Matthew, though, these details are irrelevant. What is important is that Joseph obeys exactly what he is told (laughs) to do, and as a result, Mm -hmm. Jesus was born, guided, and protected Mm -hmm. all by God.
0: Right, right.
1: And so God is, once again, God is the one who is acting behind the scenes in all of this.
0: You know, what's interesting about this is we find this with those who are God's prophets, if you will, we we find that they are doing what God tells them to do. Mm-hmm, right? That they're, mm-hmm. they're they're listening. They're, mm-hmm. they're responding to that.
1: That's an interesting take on Joseph. <laughs> uh, well, you know, and I didn't. I
0: when I prophet came out, that wasn't necessarily the word I was looking for, but it is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. um, choice, wasn't it? Well, and we're gonna. <laughs> see, I,
1: I, I, I mean, I'll I'll repeat this later, but but besides God and the angels. Um, Joseph is really the main character of Matthew's um, infancy narratives. He is,
0: and he's yeah. an important he's an important play in there. I mean, and
1: and his role is to be obedient.
0: Yeah, it is. It yeah. is it reminds me a little bit of Abraham, even yeah. right? Yeah. The obedience to, actually, of Abraham, yeah, and yeah. and um, that these these figures, um, these figures, these human figures that that show obedience to God, I, um, they're just central to the ability for. God's providence to yeah, to, to surely, move right. Surely, I mean, surely. which you know, I'm I'm talking this kind of light. Oh yes, God said to do that. But this is really a this is really a a, a big commitment of faith mm-hmm. that that a lot of people will give lip service to God, but they don't actually follow what God would. Well, do. again, we're
1: going to come so, back to this. But they were, you know they they lived they lived as refugees.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, and 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 you know, in Matthew's gospel, Bethlehem was their home. Right. They fled to Egypt for for who knows how long, you know, right. uh, months or years. And then when they came back, they didn't return to their home in Bethlehem. Exactly. They had to go to Galilee of the Gentiles.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and I might add the 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 reformers go out of their way to remind us that Egypt there's nothing really good ever comes out of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were a bunch of ill
1: well, I might mention the Library of Alexandria and the oh, Septuagint Oh, I know. Wasn't that funny? <laughs> I know. I found that
0: in there. I'm like, oh, wow, that's not expect. But yeah, again, so. that bias, and those folks, those folks would often, I mean, some of them would have acknowledged that, but then it, they had never visited Egypt. Mm-hmm. It was far away, and it was under, at this point, Muslim control. So, mm-hmm. and their minds is far away, and they're all obviously bad people. <laughs>
1: Foreigners, outsiders. Foreigners. Yeah, yeah, outsiders. Yeah, yeah. So then, at this point, Matthew includes another of the ten formula quotations in his infancy narrative in Matthew 2.15. This mm-hmm. was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, that quotation comes from Hosea 11.1, and yet it is quite clear if you read the context of Hosea that this verse does not consist of a prediction of any kind rather through hosea the lord laments that his people israel continue to disobey him even after he demonstrated his love for them by bringing them out of egypt at the exodus it would seem then that once again matthew is drawing lines of comparison between god's dealing dealings with israel in the hebrew bible and here especially at the exodus and god's actions in regard to jesus the messiah one explanation for this is that Matthew saw Jesus as repeating the experience of the Jewish people in order to emphasize again that in Jesus, God was fulfilling his redemptive purpose mm-hmm. for Israel and all humanity. And so, for example, W.D. Davies and, and uh, Dale Allison in their in their massive commentary will say, for Matthew, son of God, must have to do in part with Jesus as the personification or embodiment of true Obedient Israel. So one of the themes, and a lot of people think that one of the themes in Matthew is that whereas Israel failed as the Son of God, uh, yes, Jesus yes. will be right. the true embodiment right. of the the obedient Son of God.
0: So then, of course, they're in Egypt, but Herod is on the chase.
1: Yeah. Well, and and you know we we see. Finally, clearly that Herod's interest in Jesus was that he saw the one the Magi had said was born king of the mm-hmm. Jews as a rival to be eliminated. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's that's easy to yeah. make sense of in that time frame. I mean yeah. yeah.
1: And Matthew tells us that when, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. That's verse 16. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that Herod killed all the, I assume, male children in Bethlehem and all its districts, literally, suggests that the Magi were not actually present at Jesus' birth, but that they arrived mm-hmm. up to two years later. Right. Um, and although Herod had been a successful administrator in the earlier years, in his later years, he was tormented by paranoia and intrigue. So one just one example of the things that Herod was capable of doing in his later years. At the instigation of his sister, he had his own wife. And sons, his sons executed because he suspected them of plotting to overthrow him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Herod he was—he
0: was nuts, right? He was—he mm-hmm. was
1: in bad shape. But at the time, we don't really know. We—it's hard to—it's hard to say at the time what the population of Bethlehem may have been. Um, uh, you know, s- historians estimate that the population of Jerusalem may have been about fifty-five thousand. Um, so Bethlehem as a small town like this, it may have been only a few hundred and some have estimated that the number of children killed may have been maybe 10 to mm. 20, you know, we don't mm-hmm, really know. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you think about some of the other atrocities that, that Josephus records that Herod committed, you know, this kind of pales in comparison right. with some of the other things that happened, but you know, that really doesn't lessen the evil nature of the deed uh, but it does pale in comparison with Herod's other uh, atrocities
0: right right and i think i mean obviously when we hear it, it it's so horrifying because it's within our and mm-hmm. our context but
1: it, well and it's, it's a story we hear you know,
0: right, and right, and
1: it's and it's you know repeated on a regular basis.
0: <laughs> it it is, it is, but Josephus does not report it. Right. Some people question whether it actually happened. Right, um, because of that. Right, and um, I, again, I don't know that it matters because of the, as you said, as part of the proclamation. You're in a world with so much evil. I mean, it yeah. truly is evil everywhere yeah. you turn
1: well and and again we're you know when we're looking at the Gospels we're talking about uh, proclamation and 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 the, the truth of, of the of the gospels is that of the truth of of proclamation it's the truth of faith it's the truth of theology um, It may or may not be always historical and factual um, you know I, I do find it interesting that Josephus does tell us that Archelaus ordered a massacre immediately after the death of his father, Herod. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there may be some conflation going on there between Could those be. two events. But again, this raises the question whether the evangelists were accounting episodes they received from the oral and written gospel tradition and, and were interpreting them in light of prophetic scripture, or whether they found prophetic statements in scripture they believed applied to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's mm-hmm. saving purpose and then created an event to show its fulfillment in Jesus' life. And so for example, Davies and Allison suggest that this uh, part of Matthew's uh, that this is that this is part of Matthew's comparison between Jesus and Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's difficult at times as it is in this case to really know whether it's one or the other um we just have to be aware i think that there are times when when the gospel writers interpret the go- the gospel tradition in light of scripture and there are times i think it, it's inescapable right. to conclude that they have they have taken a scripture that has been seen as referring to jesus and they have created an event um i i don't really you know there there's some people uh, i remember there was a I forget the name of the of the of the scholar. Now there was a Johannine scholar. His his basic thesis was that most of John was simply um, improv- improvisation on on prophetic scriptures. Mm-hmm. That that it was all sort of sort of um, fabricated. I am not in favor of that wholesale fabrication right. of the narrative. I I, I see the tradition process as being more stable than that right. i don't think it i don't think it allowed for just just um um any kind of creation you know for the gospel writers to just create things at I will i agree
0: i agree i think that's i i think it's that's it sounds like then that jesus does it. it sounds like it's irrelevant it, to me that's not Well, it
1: sounds like it's just pure myth
0: myth yeah, yeah. and that i don't think mm-hmm. that's right it at all either yeah, i yeah. but i i think you do have to look into to the broad context we just of the be. A, we just
1: have mm-hmm. to be aware that that you know we can't really confirm some of the historical details of, of an event like this
0: R- right right yeah. well and i think <laughs> as you said compared to the other things that justice vis does do and compared to really the kinds of, of, of horrendous acts. This is not modern day. This is not a day when newspapers are sitting and reporting all kinds of things that are happening. Um, This is kind of thing that Herod might actually believe would give him a bad rap. And so it may not have been reported.
1: It probably wouldn't have made the news cycle. It
0: wouldn't have made the news cycle. That's how, that's how dangerous it was to live. And I think we, we tend to, we tend to kind of place our modern day American sensitivities and Mm -hmm. the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy and the kind of safety, which we always forget about really how safe we are. I had an uncle who was an FBI agent and then worked for the um, International Monetary Fund who... Looked at the world differently, realizing mm-hmm. that our sense of safety is really remarkable in the United States that we well, don't walk around and,
1: and by it's a large- not just it's not just in this country it's it's in this time frame you know? right you mm-hmm. know you think about antiquity and you know there was no declaration of human rights <laughs> exactly it, that's really, really
0: important. So when we read this, we can't believe there's not another historical marker of it. Eh. I'm not surprised, actually. Yeah, right, you know, right, this happened right.
1: a lot. <laughs> so the, I, the, I think this whole question is illustrated by the formula quotation that Matthew inserts here in verses 17 and 18. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And here the citation is from Jeremiah 35:15. Mm-hmm. And again, in its original context, it has no Nothing to do with messianic prediction. It has nothing right. to do with an event that took place in Jesus' day. Um, in Matthew 31 15, in its original context, relates to the destruction of Judah in connection with the Babylonian exile, right. which was an event that had already happened when Jeremiah Was serving as a prophet, and and when he was when he spoke this message, and so the message Jeremiah gave to the people was one of hope, in which he called those who were weeping to be still, because the Lord Lord, promised mm -hmm. that they would return from exile.
0: But that the rest of the quote isn't in that is isn't isn't given given by Matthew. So that's uh, would he have assumed that those hearing it or reading it would. Take it to the next step and add those other verses on, kind of like you know you begin something and it would be part of their memory, so they would.
1: It's add possible. It. It's possible, and and you know uh, it's hard to say. I think the the primary point that that Matthew is making here is that Jesus goes through similar experiences to the ones that the people of Israel went mm-hmm. through. That's the primary point that Matthew is making here. Um, again. I think we should note that the formula for citing the Scripture is different here from the other ones. Um, The normal pattern is, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, this took place. Mm -hmm. And it's hina with the subjunctive verb. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's indicating purpose on the part of the events and almost a sort of divine providence mm-hmm. but i think when when you think about the fact that that matthew's talking about the massacre of the innocents, well you know it would have been no, number one the the event was initiated not by god but by herod
0: right right, right?
1: And, and number two it would have been inappropriate theologically and otherwise to ascribe the massacre of the innocence to the fulfillment of god's saving yeah, purpose no,
0: right? no. and so
1: here it's um, then it was fulfilled, and it's totē with the aorist indicative. Mm. This is different from the normal way that Matthew cites these formula quotations. Um, and so, for example, in the previous one, uh, this in order this took place in order that that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Might be fulfilled, saying, "Out of Egypt I called my son." Well, it's hina with the subjunctive verb of plerao, fulfill. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this indicates you know the divine purpose at work, divine providence, so to speak, at work, God's saving purpose at work. Well, so, but but it's not hard to see that you know you just wouldn't you wouldn't ascribe that to the act mm, of, of no. Herod. This was just more of again, this was more of. Um, Davies and Allison see this as part of their Moses typology. They, they, they see, they see in, in Matthew's infancy narrative comparisons, Im, implicit comparisons between Moses and Jesus. Right. And so just as Moses, you know, was spared right. from, um, from uh, the, um, Got it. the order of Pharaoh right. that all the Hebrew children be killed. So Jesus, you know, escaped es- escapes from. from Herod's uh, intent to kill him. Um, But again, I think the main point is that Matthew is looking back at the story of the Jewish people and sees in the events surrounding Jesus' birth, the repetition of significant events Mm. from Jewish history as a demonstration of the fulfillment of God's saving purpose. And so, you know, whether it's it's Moses or even perhaps whether it's Israel in the Babylonian exile, the fact that... Yes, the, the, yes. The, this, is, this is this is what seems to be motivating right, Matthew right. Is, to, is to show that Jesus sort of repeats the experience of Israel in his own personal right, life and yes. he does so as the obedient son of God, yes. whereas Israel failed to do that. And
0: that is a little bit of what some of the reformers are going to uh, mm-hmm. going to identify in this as well. Mm-hmm. So good. All right. And so then um, there's also this um, this whole other theme Um, that they aren't aren't recognizing him um, as the king of the Jews.
1: Yes, and and this really comes in with chapter 2, and we'll see it next week as well. The, there's a theme of conflict that comes in here. Um, just as Herod and the religious leaders failed to worship Jesus as the king of the Jews, so Herod's attempts to eliminate Jesus as a potential rival foreshadows the conflict his teaching and mm-hmm. ministry would receive at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, right. and that would lead to his crucifixion, his death. But I think I think Matthew wants us to see that already as a young child, the mere fact of Jesus' birth provokes this kind of conflict mm-hmm. from. Herod, Herod is provoked right. enough to try to kill Jesus, even as a young child, right. And you got to think about it. I mean, Herod's the king, and he's right. got he's got at his disposal, you know, armies and and all kinds right. of wealth and power. And he sees uh, he's so threatened by the birth of a child that he, right. he 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 does this extreme act of killing all these innocents.
0: How does you might know this. How does Josephus view Herod? You know, I, I think of Herod comes down in history to us as being this evil, selfish, suck up to the Roman governor or Roman um, Roman authorities, build big buildings. You know.
1: Well, I mean, I think again in the early part of his of his of his regime you know he's viewed as this builder as one mm-hmm. who you know he's built he he builds this temple and a jewish he,
0: leader i mean do they do they respect not him not really at no
1: all? no he was never he was never viewed i think by the people as truly jewish <clears throat> he was viewed more as jewish in name only herod was jewish but he he, so he did didn't not really, He did not live as a, as a mean, practicing so Jewish his
0: relationships person. to, for example, like the Sadducees or the Pharisees, they yeah. all kind of held him at arm's length. Yeah. of yeah. yeah, The rich yeah. guy in the palace that yeah.
1: he we he would have been with. seen as an arm of of of, uh, not necessarily. An, uh, Herod was not necessarily a client king. He was right. not necessarily a puppet king, but um, they would have seen him as having his own agenda. And of course, his agenda early on was one of building. He was right. building his yeah, empire. By building. by building cities, mm-hmm. by building fortresses, by building the temple, and um, you know, and so he was known for that early on. And I think p- probably had a. I mean, I think there was some positive regard for him for his building projects early I, on. Well, and, but
0: and he secured. Some kind of stability, yeah, at least while he was yeah. there. And he, he was unified, because once he dies, he, it divides up. The Romans divide but, up that territory. But
1: toward the end of his reign, the he does he succumb into this paranoia. And, and you know, he, he just, I mean, it, it really becomes um, almost a horror story toward the end. Right, And right. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at Josephus you know, directly for myself. But my impression is that at that point, you know, Herod is feared because he has the power to do what he wants but he he's he's right. using it he's wielding that power really quite unreasonably and and you know in a way that was that I think I think ter- right. I mean I think it's telling that that in in verse 2 of this chapter you know it says that Herod was was afraid and all Jerusalem with him you yeah, know yeah. because if Herod's upset right. Jerusalem the people of Jerusalem know that Herod's likely to take it out on them
0: right Right, yeah. Well, and obviously, this is how he came down in history to us, mm-hmm. and the way that he's depicted by all our by Matthew here reflects
1: mm-hmm. this.
0: I mean, he, he's like the worst of the worst, yeah. and yet I was curious early on because we know this early on that was not the case. Some, I mean, he sense. wasn't
1: necessarily adored, but but he he I think there was some admiration yeah. for the for what he accomplished early yeah. on. Yeah,
0: fair enough. All right, so. Um, we again have the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph.
1: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Once again, the angel appears to Joseph to inform him that Herod had died and to instruct him to return to the land of Israel. And so Matthew says when Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in, in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And again, Matthew says, "Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel." And again, I think we're meant to see that not only that that Joseph obeys the instructions he receives exactly, but that also again God is the one who is d- directing and protecting the child Jesus in mm-hmm. his in his fortunes yeah. and in his his life.
0: And then, um, so. Obviously, to divide the kingdom after that,
1: right after Herod's death, the kingdom is divided among his his sons. Mm-hmm. And Herod's son Archelaus, Matthew says, reigned in his father's stead. That's a um, that's putting it maybe overstating it. He was Archelaus was an ethnarch, which meant he was sort of a probationary right. ruler. Uh, if he was able to prove his ability to rule Judea. Um, to the Romans, he would have stayed in power, but he was not, and he was deposed and right. sent into exile in in six uh, C.E. But jo- but so because Archelaus was the one in charge, Joseph decided not to return to Judea, mm-hmm. but rather he was instructed in a dream to go to Nazareth in Galilee. And so Matthew tells us, but when he heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee, mm-hmm. and there he made his home in a town called Nazareth. That's 22 mm-hmm. and 23. Now, in combination with Matthew 2.1, Matthew's gospel suggests that Joseph and Mary lived in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Mm-hmm. This is something, again, that I, I mentioned earlier, but I want to come back to. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Joseph and Mary live in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He lives in Bethlehem until right. he's forced to leave. Right. And, and they only make their home in Nazareth when they return from Egypt and they only do that because they can't return to Bethlehem because they're afraid right, of Archelaus, right? Right? right.
0: And then um, we kind of had the final piece there as to this idea that um, this idea that Jesus is from Nazareth and he is a Nazarene or a Nazarite. Um, and this is a big this right. big sticking point for our reformers, actually.
1: Yes. The lesson concludes with a, with a, with a final formula quotation. Matthew says that Jesus moved in to Nazareth, took place, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. Quote, he will be called a Nazarene. Uh, That's the way the new RSV translates it anyway. The problem is that this text, this quotation cannot be found anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. (laughs) It's just not there.
0: And not in the Septuagint either.
1: No, no. okay. Trying to figure out what's going on here is difficult to say the least. (laughs) Very likely Matthew was familiar with the tradition that Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And sought to justify this uh, in that's light of Jesus. True. Jesus more significant, theologically significant connection with Bethlehem, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because we've seen that already in Matthew's gospel. It's significant both in Luke and in Matthew that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So we have this tradition of Jesus being connected with Bethlehem. So then how does he become known as Jesus of Nazareth, right? right? And and so apparently Matthew was familiar with this tradition that Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, and is seeking to justify this with a scriptural citation by referring to his residence at Nazareth as, at Nazareth, as something that had been spoken through the prophets. And we should note the plural, mm-hmm. because normally he says if he uses this phrase, he says in order that it might be fulfilled, which was that which was spoken through the prophet. Hmm. saying right because he's citing a particular prophet or particular passage of scripture and and so in other words perhaps matthew felt that the tradition associating jesus with nazareth was so strong that it needed scriptural support but he doesn't have a specific scripture to (laughs) cite in support of it so he just kind of throws it out there as this is this is biblical friends
0: Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah.
1: And, and it's it's you know although and and most most New Testament scholars try to trace Matthew's process here some associate it with the word Nazarite yes. in the Old Testament. Yes.
0: that's what they do in a, some of them do in, a, in a Some associate it
1: with the uh, with the with the mention in Isaiah 11:1 of out of out of the there will be a shoot out of the branch right. of 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 the, of the of the stump of David there and, and Netzer is the is the Hebrew right, that, word for shoot? I
0: saw that too. Yep.
1: Um, Nazarene was also a name by which Christians ha- were known in early church history, and so right. you you know we might work our way backward that maybe that was part of what was going right. on here. So there, it's a very complicated. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a very complicated situation.
0: Well, I keep thinking about oral tradition that has labeled Jesus of from Naz-
1: Nazareth, Jesus that, of Nazareth, yeah. and
0: and how that. Happened or how that became part of the tradition? You don't know. You can't always. Can't always. I think. That.
1: I think it probably reflect. Ref, I think that 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 probably was so prevalent that it it must reflect some sort of reality that Jesus was from Nazareth in some yeah, sense. In some right? sense, right? I think that must have been the case. But what we have going on here is, again, this is this is uh, gospel, it's proclamation, it's Matthew justifying this based on a general reference to the scriptures, not a specific right. quotation from right. a particular that's prophet. Right, that's true, that's right? true. And so, again, you know, I think what he's doing here is is using a designation that was known to him to make the connection between Jesus mm-hmm. and Nazareth. As a matter of prophetic fulfillment, again emphasizing this idea that Jesus, Jesus' life is fulfilling God's purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're coming to the end of today's um, lectionary passage, what you know, what, what do you want people to go away with?
1: Well, there are a couple of things. It's common to note in connection with this text that Jesus lived as a refugee, according to Matthew. After being mm-hmm. born in Bethlehem and having lived there for some time, he was forced to flee to Egypt where he lived for an indefinite period of time as a refugee in Egypt. And even when he was able to, quote-unquote, return... It was to Galilee, and in Matthew's gospel, we must note that Galilee is known as Galilee of the Gentiles, Correct. which mm-hmm. was the way many Jewish people in Judea saw it. Galilee was foreign territory. It was not home. He did not return to his home of Bethlehem in Judea. Right, right. Um, He returned. He, he So basically, Jesus lived his whole life as a refugee.
0: Right, exactly. And that's... It, the whole point, right? Not the, And we see this, actually we see this later on. It, well,
1: Jesus says reflection. the son of man has no place to lay his head, right? Exactly. So, now, I think more than that, even though, more than the idea that Jesus lived as a refugee, I think we see the continuation of themes that are going to run through Matthew's gospel. God is the one who directs Jesus' movements here. Joseph, interestingly, is the main character yes. of Jesus. Matthew's infancy narrative in terms of the main human character and it's primarily we Joseph <laughs> plays a role primarily through his obedience mm-hmm. to God's directions but here also we should note that an ominous note of threat comes into play um, with the conflict that Jesus provokes already as a child and the incredibly evil action of the massacre of the innocents which points us forward to the execution execution of the innocent one, mm-hmm. Jesus himself, at the hands of the Jewish and Roman powers. And so God's saving purpose is indeed in process of being fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled in a way that no one in that day could have expected.
0: Right. All right. Well, we will look at a little bit what the Reformers say.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to see what Christy found with the Reformers in relation to this passage. So Christy, tell us what you found.
0: So I was, I found today, I was looking at the Reformation commentaries. The new one is out on Matthew. So I looked at those today, um, for our discussion primarily. And, um, you know, the, uh, the there's some themes, and they kind of divide this as we did into kind of sections, if you will, right? There's the the first part, which is talking about the fulfillment of um, the prophecy of Hosea. Then there's the um, the next part is the slaughter of the innocents, and then finally, on return to Nazareth. So they've got there were kind of three separate things they were emphasizing when I when I pulled apart this apart, and so. I think one of the interesting things they they looked at is they went from not only Hosea but the Hosea was referencing Balaam's oracles mm-hmm. in Numbers, mm-hmm. and Alan had mentioned that some of the contemporary folks had picked up on this as well.
1: Yeah, the the mention of the star in the previous part of of chapter two points to a statement in in Numbers twenty four seventeen. Um, out of Jacob, a star shall arise, mm-hmm. basically, and it mm-hmm. refers to a ruler. And so then they 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 speculated that led to an earlier part of Numbers 24, which speaks about bringing bringing them out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And and yes. so that that could have been some of the background of his thinking in terms of using Hosea eleven one.
0: Right, yeah. right. So, it, again, it's interesting to think of the prophets then looking back and, you know, and, and maybe having having this tie to earlier scripture too. So it's just really cool Well, stuff. and one of, course, of the
1: things I, I learned in my study was that Balaam's oracles, you know, have been used throughout the history of the church mm-hmm. as sort of messianic in, in yeah. nature. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: And you know, if you think about the God's providence and working through Israel, um,
1: well, and, it and Balaam sense. was a it really, really was an, a significant event in the wilderness, in in the it, conquest. Basically, you know, so this demonstrates God's providence in terms of Israel, you know, and his right, protection exactly, of Israel. Exactly. Exactly. You know? So you yeah, can see yeah, where yeah, there's yeah. there's some s- sort of similar themes there.
0: Exactly. So moving on then for this first part, then looking at um, looking at the that the passage in relationship to prophecy for Bootser that Jesus would come out of Egypt was the way in which God would declare that the kingdom of God quote, must be transferred from the Jews to the Gentiles.
1: Okay. Okay. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) I know. I don't know.
0: Um, I think it was that desire to, and and again, I think part of this is some of the anti-Semitism that's going on Mm -hmm. during the time period that we have definitely seen with, um, with We see it with Luther. We see it with Calvin. Um, and so in this, I think we can, as I said, this anti-Jewish bias is part of the reformer's world. Um, instead of putting the Book of Acts, for example, as being Why? the kind of bring on. To the, the
1: ends of the earth, right?
0: Boethius exactly, <laughs> using to show God's intention to reach the Gentiles now. Mm. And um, and he also references a series of legends about the presence of Jesus in Egypt, um, mm. which made the idols of Egypt totter. So <laughs> it's his interpretation and and that's kind of interesting as well um this is kind of a midrash and did i didn't find exactly what he's referencing but apparently there were lots of stories about jesus in egypt and so that had made its way at least into that time period
1: yeah there i mean of course there were the apocryphal gospels of jesus childhood but then, um, right? There were also in, in Jewish circles, you know, the, the, the sort of the notion was that Jesus went to Egypt to learn how to be a magician, and so he comes back and is able to, <laughs> you know, and it's this really really derogatory, you know, right. of Jesus, you know, that right. he comes back and he acts as a magician. He's not really he's not healing really, people. He's right. just he's just performing, he's performing.
0: magic tricks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another figure I found was Fr- um, Francisus Gamoris. He's a Dutch reformer, and he is much later I have dates on him 1563 to 1641 um, and so again a much later figure after even after Calvin but it claims that Christ fulfills the prophecy not exactly but in kind in other words this is like an example of divine work of leading the people out of Egypt he goes into quite a bit of detail about how this can be read as a fulfillment of prophecy but what I'd like is that he is recognizing this is not a direct prediction that Christ is coming but rather that's something Matthew looks back upon.
1: And that's amazing to me that someone in that time frame was able to have that insight because that's a that's a very modern Isn't that approach. modern? Yeah. But
0: that's what that's what some of the reformed tradition people are doing um in this time period um we saw this a little bit with Calvin also. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes we did. And
0: um so I think it's coming out of there but I think then the reformed tradition kind of takes a turn and kind of and kind of backs off of that for a little mm-hmm. bit, um, but some of these guys that are still and he's kind of in this time frame are still really thinking um, pretty sophisticatedly about their theology and about their about how the Bible is um, the kind of breadth of the Bible in terms of its relationship to Old New Testament. I mean, I think as I said, I think and and this is one of those places where they're really looking at it as. Um, of, of looking back it's into into the Scripture instead of Scripture predicting. However, <laughs> then the other one was the uh, work of Wolfgang Capito. Now, remember, he is, he's earlier, he's a, he's a contemporary of Luther. And so for him, this is a prediction of the coming of Christ. So just the opposite. Quote, mm-hmm. all figures, histories, threats, promises, rages, and favors are either the image or the truth of Christ. All the scriptures meet together in one person, in Christ, just as it is particularly fitting for their scope and end.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I guess if that's your if that's your hermeneutical lens, if that's the lens through which you're reading the Hebrew Bible, then it has to right. be a direct prediction of the coming of Christ, because but, it has to be either the image or the truth of Christ. <laughs>
0: but you can see how you're starting to get, you know, even I realize Gamoris is in a different later, but you're starting to see how the Lutheran tradition is separating itself from a reformed Mm -hmm. tradition there. And you can see by where these two different kinds of lenses are clashing a little bit and how Mm -hmm. you really understand and interpret scripture, Right, you know? Um, And I think it does explain a little bit why there's, there's, Additional conflict. It's not just theology of what happens in the Eucharist, but there's theo- there's theological differences in how they're approaching. Oh, scripture. of course,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, Luther's approach to to the relationship between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament versus Calvin's re- approach exactly. to that issue are are vastly different. Exactly. In my yeah.
0: Ex- exactly. And um, um, I think that's as I said. I think later on there's this attempt to. Uh, <laughs> at times try to come back together. And mm-hmm. then I think you see this kind of rigidity coming and we kind of lose for a while, this kind of uh, base on Calvin until then it kind of explodes again. So mm-hmm. you can see these patterns develop. Okay. So the next part is how they dealt with the slaughter of the innocents. Um, and so the first comment I read was about how the wise men mocked Herod by not <laughs> returning to report on the whereabouts of the Christ child. And so, Clearly, this was an indication that Herod, that they related Herod to the wise men as being peers, mm-hmm. and that he, Herod would have thought that the wise men would have been um, spies for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this, them not returning, in and, and the opinion here, was that that led Herod to respond Mm. with the slaughter.
1: Well, in the way the text is worded, you could see how they would come to that Mm -hmm. conclusion. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And for the Reformers, it was an example of how evil, how corrupt human beings could be. Mm -hmm. But despite his villainy, God would have the final voice. Mm. In other words, it is a direct relationship between the power of God versus the power of human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, God's purpose will be fulfilled. Um, And then... um, one of the other characters that I read, John Lightfoot, he was an Anglican um, Anglican um, theologian, and he was actually a member of the Westminster Assembly, which mm. is kind of cool. Yeah, um, and he he has comments on this whole idea of from Jeremiah on Ramah. He gives this background as a location of the ne- Nebuchadnezzar, um who was a general for Nebuchadnezzar and for how he brought his prisoners there and that he was known as the butcher. Um, and so he had quite a reputation as being mm-hmm. the one who carried out the slaughter during the Babylonian captivity. All right, Either they went into captivity or they were killed. And I think we forget that. We think of all the Jewish people as simply being rounded up and headed mm-hmm. to Babylon. Right. And so many were killed. And this this is something that really not only did you lose your home, but you lost so many family members and friends and into the this, this slaughter. And we've seen that with war before. We're not blind to that. I mean, we're in the middle of watching what's happening in Ukraine and the thousands and thousands of, I think they've said 50,000 war crimes have been officially reported, mm. officially reported, mm. right? So this is how it's ugly. Um, and uh, anyway, it may not be accurate to history. I want to point that out. Um, in fact, it seems to be that um, if you look further into it, that Ramah is not that specific kind of location. Um, but nonetheless, I think it in the entire region, that would have still been part, mm-hmm. the, the entire experience would have been relatable to everybody. Um, now, interestingly enough, they said that... Uh, this obviously led to the lament. And Calvin goes into more discussion about the lament here for um, the entire, uh, what would have been Rachel. And Rachel's used as kind of a metaphor, the mother of the entire tribe of Benjamin, sure. right? Um, not that it was Rachel specifically. She was already gone, but mm-hmm. this was the, her child. Mm-hmm. And that, so she was crying over the uh, the child. Yeah. Um, and he'll point out that despite this disaster, which would be in the expected world not to lead to salvation, that Christ would overcome it, and even the cruelest acts of humanity, Christ mm. would overcome. Um, and it's, I
1: think that I think that's a pretty, um, again, that's a pretty. Uh- ahead of his time, insight, you know, just to be able to recognize this as a cruel act of humanity, but that Christ is going to overcome mm. that, you know, I think that's a, a that's a pretty keen insight on Galvin's part. Interesting. Yeah. Well,
0: and he actually, you know, I asked Alan earlier if people would have been um, in tune with the next part of that, of, of this um, verse in Jeremiah, and you know, Calvin reminds us that that next part is hope and yes. restoration. Um, again, whether people would have actually read it with that in mind, mm-hmm. uh, I guess we don't probably know when it was originally written. But um, but anyway, both of these actives is a backdrop to salvation, and it is a comparison of the worst remembered and the best promised. Mm-hmm. So it actually has, despite such a harsh sound, it has such a beautiful promise. Mm-hmm. And it,
1: Certainly. surely. Uh, I, I think. Well, it's in connection with the promise of restoration I think, from exile.
0: I think we're so put off by it mm-hmm. that we can't read yeah. the promise that's in it, and that might be part of our modern sensibilities. Yeah. That you know that we just can't even read this. I, I think, I most pastors I know just preach something else. Yeah. So. Um, while I was reading this, one of the questions I had was whether the Reformation writers made any specific reference to Rachel and to being female, and I found one, and I was surprised that, um, I was surprised at it because, and I surprised what they said, because <laughs> the response was not Rachel the mother, which I think some of them meant, but but rather that women are more prone to lament, and they're... <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but and so they underemphasized the mother mm. aspect of it, um, which I think was what uh, was really why so they were referencing Rachel in the first place. Yeah, assumption. kind of the weaker gender assumption, yeah, so yeah. it was interesting. Yeah. And then finally on the return to Nazareth. So in this final section, Calvin offers a really interesting dialogue about the role of Joseph and keep his, his family in Egypt during the time of danger. Mm. And Calvin believed that the t- now time of safely reflected in the governor of Galilee, a man of a gentle disposition who treated his subjects with mind- mildness. Well, you know,
1: Herod Agrippa was was definitely a better uh, ruler than um, mm-hmm. than Herod uh, the Great was at the end of his reign. But I don't know that he would have known as being a particularly beneficent person.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, and. Anyway, his thought was it was safe enough there that he could grow, but yet at the same time, he said, but look, his parents always lived with fear and danger for their son. And so he lived this place where he could grow up, but yet he would always be aware of the nervousness of Mm. his parents. Mm. So- we don't know that but yeah. I, th- I thought that was interesting that Calvin mm. it doesn't that didn't even sound that much like Calvin to me right. and yet at the same time
1: sort of th- an early attempt at psychological um, interpretation yeah you know, mm-hmm.
0: yeah kind of and I do think um, trying to trying to build the humanity of mm-hmm. Jesus trying to make us understand yeah. that experience of how we
1: might well, and, and that that might might help us also with that idea you know of Jesus lived as a refugee. You know, yeah, right. Because he right. didn't live in his home, according didn't to Matthew. Live in his,
0: exactly. And then there was also a debate of where Nazarene Mm -hmm. originated. And um, a lot of the same ones that Alan pulled up, they did as well. Uh, One of the big things was the reference to the idea that he was a Nazarite Mm -hmm. and that the vows um, that a Nazarite had to take and that Christ was the ultimate sign of a Nazarene. He was the most pure, according to Melanchthon, the most pure and a proclaimer speaking for God of intoxicated human opinions, but preaching pure words
1: yeah well you know one of the things i i overlooked or overlooked to mention was that um Some people think that the Nazarite is the this this reference to the Nazarite in in the Septuagint is is one of the main sources because in the Septuagint the phrase Nazarite of God and holy one of God are used interchangeably Mm -hmm. and so you know if Matthew was aware of this then he could have used that as as a basis Mm -hmm. for um, coming up with this reference from the prophets. Right,
0: right, right, and then ultimately, Theodore Beza points out that there's no they found found no city referenced in the Old Testament called Nazareth, and so that what does what does that mean? Is is it? And he goes on to this idea: is it just a place that's marked by branches, kind of going on that Mm -hmm. origin Mm -hmm. of the word? Um, Kind of interesting though; they don't feel confident in yeah. where nazareth even is and
1: that was a thing i saw also in in in, in um, davies and allison they talked about how in previous generations you know there was there, there was a question as to whether there was even a nazareth mm-hmm. and uh, you know whether or not nazareth was referenced specifically whether we have specific archaeological remains of nazareth that's an argument from silence and it's really not necessarily a conclusion right we, we can or should draw
0: well, and you know, if it were just a tiny little village, right, um, it it could be covered up so fast. We may never have right. evidence. I might had was at a went to a dance club outside of his his small town. It fifty years later, you could barely find it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yes, we eventually found it, but to find the archaeological evidence, especially mm-hmm. of, a, of a of a village, right, might be nearly impossible. Right. And so
1: the places we know are the ones that were that were habitated over centuries.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. However, in the you know, for the archaeological finds, they are finding stuff all the time. Surely. So you never know. It Surely. may still be may still be found.
1: Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks.
0: Hi everybody. We're back. And, you know, I, we were talking in between in our break about um, that this passage occurs during Christmas tide. You're going to sing Christmas carols, and you're going to preach on the slaughter of the innocents. <laughs> and I guess my question for Alan is, and why should we preach this?
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that's a good question. And, I, you know, frankly... I'm not sure I ever have, to be honest with you. <laughs> I
0: think a lot of people don't. Uh,
1: one of the reasons is I tend to take the Sunday after Christmas as a vacation. But <laughs> <That's> um, <true. laughs> um, one of the reasons is probably also just well, it's what a, you associate say. Pa-
0: associate Pastor Sunday, if you have one.
1: <laughs> well, or for me, it would have been a supply. But um, yeah. It, um, Um, the other question was the one you ask, you know, we're singing Christmas carols and, and we're talking about the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, You know, I'm going to take a cue from, from Gene Boring's commentary. Um, so Gene Boring has an interesting approach that he takes in his commentary. I don't know if you're familiar with the new, new interpreters Bible, but you know, you have sort of an introductory overview and then you have the verse by verse, it breaks down and then you have reflections at the end of each section and in his reflections section, he does something unique. He 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 writes a fictitious story of one of the other children from Bethlehem, um, and I don't remember the parents' names, but the, he was Davy was his name. He was David, right? Mm-hmm. Little Davy, and little Davy was one of the innocents who whom Herod had killed. And, and so it's from the perspective of little Davy's parents. And, you know, and they find out later that that Joseph had been warned and was able to save um, little Josie, <laughs> little Joshua, little Josh <laughs> um, from, from Herod. Um, um, but little Davy, you know, perished. And, you know, so the questions that that raises in terms of the ethics of even – the whole mentality of there, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, I mean, well, that's nice, but what about the people who didn't get spared from whatever it was that happened? You know, how how are they going to view God and, and what are they what are they to think about God's providence or God's saving purpose? And and he he go he talks about how, um, you know, one of the things that we learn. In Matthew's gospel, as well as in the New Testament as a whole, is that violence is a, f- a feature that is a part of this world. It is a feature that is a part of the kingdoms of this world. The powers that be in this world use violence. And certainly that was the case in ancient times. I mean, mm-hmm. there you know, the Magna Carta was the first declaration of human rights in Western civilization. That was in the 11th century, right? So. Mm-hmm. 1215. 1215. Okay. So that was in the, that was in the 13th century. <laughs> so what we're talking about hundreds of years ago, right? And, 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 and we have, I mean, our own declaration of human rights in the, in the constitution and the, and the, and the spread of democracy. That's a relatively recent mm-hmm. phenomenon mm-hmm. in the world stage. And, and there's none of this back then. And so, you know, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar acting on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's Herod's soldiers, you know, they could, they could just slaughter whomever they wanted with, with impunity. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, how do you respond to violence? And of course, Josephus, we know, Josephus was a part of the Jewish rebellion the Jewish revolt against the Romans, which led to the deaths of many, many Jewish people. And finally, when Josephus was captured, he was like a general in Galilee and he was captured. And he went over to the Roman side and became an apologist for them and tried to show that the Romans were forced into doing what they were doing because of the acts of some um, unscrupulous Jewish bandits is what he calls them, basically. Um, So... um, uh, we have that. We have that contemporary example of the Jewish war, with, which just devastated um, the Jewish people. And then finally, the there was another Jewish war about another um, fifty years later that led to the total expulsion of the Jews from that region, and and the Roman providence of Palestine, you know, became mm-hmm. um, uh, very different territory from from right. what had been the kingdom of of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, but J. Boring's point is that he, he brings out, you know, the way Jesus responds to the violence that was directed to him. Mm-hmm. Jesus responded by accepting it, by absorbing it, by taking it on himself in order to transform the power. And in, in a very real mm-hmm. sense, by taking it on itself, on himself, he breaks the power of violence and, and f- frees not only himself from the threat of violence, but frees everyone from the fear of violence because, you know, um, he breaks the power of death in a very right. real sense right. by, by his death and resurrection. Right. And so then this becomes then the paradigm in the New Testament for for the response to violence. And, and you know, I think you could uh, talk about um, here, you know, we have an example of this violent act of Herod, and yet it's, you know, Jesus is threatened potentially by this violence as a child. God providentially um, spares him and, and protects him from that violence, but it is only so that eventually, when the time is right, he will die, mm-hmm. and he will take that violence on himself. right. And, and and in order to transform it and, and to, 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 to to take the power out of it you know where oh death is I staying right 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 <laughs> and, and that kind of that kind of sentiment and so I think we you could see this as sort of a, 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 a very stark it's a troubling but very stark foreshadowing of Jesus death on the cross mm-hmm. that the one who came to fulfill God's saving purpose is going to fulfill it in a way that most people would not expect
0: right. That's true. He's not That's going true. to ascend
1: the throne of David. Right. He's going to he's going to right. ascend a cross and right. be crucified in a humiliating and shameful day.
0: Well, and we're so used to jumping from this and not, you know, Christmas is all happy. And then we jump to something else. Mm-hmm. And this this seems like a real, real story in the middle of our Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Um that really begs us to ask what really is the meaning of Christ's coming? Mm-hmm. It is not just the baby. It is the, the ultimately Christ's sacrifice, death, and resurrection. Well, and, and so I like it, even though it's it's still rough territory to go into. Yeah,
1: well, and even though as a baby, he is a threat to the powers that it's be, true. so much so that Herod that's is willing true. to resort to this kind of violence. Yeah, that's um, true. That's and, true. And so, and so we have this as as, as New Testament. Commentators will point out this theme of conflict that Jesus' presence, even as a baby as a child, is a threat to mm-hmm. the powers that be. Right, and so well, that's another. Theme. It's a threat to the
0: power of human sin. It's a threat to the way that humans, when left on their own devices, act.
1: It is. I mean, it and it really brings out sort of the countercultural nature mm-hmm. of even celebrating Christmas. Yeah. Because we celebrate the birth of the one who came to subvert all the kingdoms of this world, whether it was the kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of Augustus or whether it was the kingdom of Washington, D.C. or the kingdom of Madison Avenue or the kingdom of Wall Street or the kingdom of whatever, you know, whatever human powers, whatever human impulses, whatever human urges drive us on, you know. The, we celebrate the birth of the one who came to undercut all of that right. and and supplant it with the kingdom of god which is a very different reality from what we know.
0: Well, that that brings a real heaviness. Um I mean a, 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 a gravitas if mm-hmm. you will to the celebration, right? Absolutely. Um and 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 I I really like that. I mean, I really, you know, when you when you head there then on and and during Christmas tide and you can sing some of those you know joy to the world, and it's not it it, it, it it remind it puts it back to where it should be i think
1: i, I, I mean and this it, i mean this this leads me to Handel's messiah right you know and Handel's messiah is is composed of a lot of the of the verses that point toward Jesus as Messiah, but then it, ultimately you have the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Right, right, right. And so there is that theme, Mm -hmm. you know, in that very, uh, I mean, that oratorio that's very much oriented around the birth of Jesus. Right, that's true. And it points forward to the end goal, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, things are going to change, you know uh it's sort of like the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends toward justice you know that mm-hmm. kind of theme mm-hmm. and and the idea is that herod may be able to inflict this kind of harm now but there will come a time when he will not be able to do that right. because he the ultimate power is going to be god's power and it's going to be the power of love and the power of justice and the power mm-hmm. of peace
0: mm-hmm. yeah well everyone good luck if you're going to preach it but i think you've got i think you've got something really good here
1: thanks christy that's our podcast for today if you heard something that was helpful to you please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us
0: it's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of christ
1: we hope you'll tune in next week and in the meantime let's keep serving each other as we together Listen for for the the word.
0: word.